In connection with Lord's Day 5, we turn to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Begin in chapter 1, verse 13, which reads, And to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? That's all they are. In other words, they're just ministering spirits. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That is, what they had heard is why this Jesus of Nazareth is the one come to replace the sacrifices and the priesthood, because Hebrews is pointed first of all at Jews, and especially Jews who had been converted and and told the truth of the gospel, but had families that resented their leaving Judaism. And how in the world is it that this Jesus of yours and this Christian faith has the right to replace the word of God as we find in the Old Testament with all the priests and sacrifices? Why isn't that suddenly true religion now? Come back to Judaism. Don't go with these Christians and this Jesus who is supposedly throwing the whole of the Old Testament scriptures over. Did he? Did he? The Jews wanted to say so. They told their, those who were converted, that's what's happened. And the apostle has to demonstrate, no, that's not what happened. This Jesus we preach is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament priests and sacrifices, if you understand them properly. Here, let me explain things to you. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation with the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So Jesus made great claims concerning himself and uh, God testified of his truth by these gifts and miracles, the signs and wonders he was able to perform. Unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But when a certain place testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. But now crowned with glory and honor, for he by the grace of God that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things to bring many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
because I couldn't understand why Amaziah should suffer. He's supposed to have victory. Sufferings? What good were sufferings? Well, let me explain this to you. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to be called their brother. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took on him not, he took not on him the nature of angels, he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Notice that word reconciliation. That's, of course, the calling of the mediator, to make reconciliation. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is also able to succor them that are tempted. Wherefore, holy brother, in particular, holy calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Thus far, the reading of the word. Blessed to our hearts, and notice... For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him and the power of death, the devil. And he took on him not the nature of angels, he took on him the seed of Abraham. He came as a man. In that connection, we turn to Lord's Day 5 as it deals, begins to deal with man's deliverance and how God has ordained to accomplish man's deliverance, salvation from condemnation and from the power of sin itself. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape the punishment and be again received into favor? God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make the satisfaction? By no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no more, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's general wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it, that is, to bring it to its completion. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man, but also perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. At first blush, impossible. One can be man, one is God. 
One can't be both. Can he? Explain that one to me, that one can be God, one can be a man and God at the same time. Is that possible? What is impossible with man, and even seemingly impossible to man, is possible with God. And God be thanked, not only possible, but real. It, according to the testimony of the Holy Gospel of the Word of God, actually occurred. There is someone who is a man, and he is God at the same time, if you can believe it. It's a wonder, and it simply transcends comprehension and understanding. But our faith is in the God who does the humanly impossible. And he does the humanly impossible for us. God so loved that he gave. Not simply sent. He gave of himself the greatest of gifts. His son, who is himself, and joined his son himself to our flesh, that he might do what? You say save, yeah. How? To suffer in our stead and to accomplish the seemingly impossible. That's where this Lord's Day is heading. The loved end really is the substance of it when all is said and done. It's seen maybe this kind of logical and mathematical it needs to be this, you can't be this, it needs to be this, you can't be this, but has to do with God's love. Because apart from the unfathomable love of God, God would not have bothered satisfying his justice, beloved, and uh, simply have cast everyone into everlasting 
condemnation. Because he so loved and did not will that there be a segment of mankind that not perish, that you even talk about the qualifications of a mediator. After all, considering the rebellion and the corruption of man, I could simply have said, you're not worth it to me. You're certainly not worth what you're going to cost me. Off to hell with the lot of you. Why should the likes of you cost me my dearest and my most precious? But God so loved. And it's because he so loved that you can begin to talk about a mediator and our need for a mediator and God considering our need for a mediator and what was necessary if we're going to be reconciled to himself and then himself be willing to count to himself or us. This is not simply mathematical and logical and so on. It is what is necessary and needed if the likes of us are going to be saved from condemnation and reconciled unto the God and know his friendship again. The righteous God, having to take it upon himself to satisfy his own righteousness, because, beloved, that's something you and I never could do, do do, or will do. We're cast upon the mercy of God to supply the one with these necessary qualifications. So, with that in mind, our need for a mediator only God himself can provide due to God's righteous character and because of who and what he, this mediator, had to be. We're confronted here with the necessity of the atonement. Notice I said the atonement. Not simply of a atonement. Some payment being made. Some reimbursement to God in some shape or form. That won't work. What's needed is the atonement. And the atonement means a human sacrifice. Don't forget, the cross was. It was a human sacrifice. And a, not a quick death. Slip the throat of the animal and he just bleeds quickly to death. Suffering. 
conscious suffering physically, but also the anguish internally of experiencing the wrath of God. The death and the suffering and the blood of the mediator, it had to be that way. That's what scripture declares. There is no other way. And not if it is true that we are going to be saved in the sense of forgiven and reconciled to God and receive once again what is called everlasting life. That's what the catechism is bringing home here. What the first section of the catechism has made plain to you, I trust, is that for man to be saved, any man to be saved and reconciled unto God and delivered from condemnation, then it's going to have to come from an outside source. We aren't going to be able to accomplish it ourselves, because what the first section of the Catechism has done, amongst other things, is to remind us of the truth of Ephesians 2, verse 1. You, he, who, and then it has a telex, hath he quickened. But that's not in the first verse of Ephesians chapter 2. That's found way down in verse 5. First Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, just simply says, and you, and now let's talk about you and me as we were left to ourselves, were dead in trespasses and sins. That means dead because of trespasses and sins, but also in trespasses and sins. And that means rendered completely incapable of doing anything to undo what has been done to us. The dead don't do anything. They can't do anything. That's true physically. That's true spiritually. If one is spiritually dead, one has been rendered incapable of undoing what has been visited upon oneself, this bondage and the sentence of death and condemnation and all the rest. For there to be deliverance, we're going to have to be cast upon another, and that other is going to have to be, of course, Almighty God. Only God is the one who's going to have the power to undo the power of death. And of course you go in the scriptures and you find a number of times where there has been resurrection from the dead, spoken of course by prophets and so on as they spoke the word of God, even Christ himself and the dead made alive like the little child from the arms of his, his mother in the Zarephath and Zarephath and so on, and Lazarus raised from the from that he has the the power. But is that reconciliation? 
are cast upon God with almighty power, but according to Scripture, more is needed than that. Just power, because those who were raised from the dead went right back and they died again, didn't they? And just being raised from the dead doesn't remove the sin and doesn't remove the sentence of condemnation and doesn't remove the wedge that between the most righteous God and the uh, and a sinner. More has to be done. It's a matter of power. But God will use his power in accordance with what? To satisfy what? Has to do with his righteousness. That's why a sacrifice is needed and in the way of suffering if we are going to be saved. It has to do, beloved, with the character of God. And that's what this Lord's Day really is all about, the character, the truth of the character of God. And the truth of the character of God has to do with righteousness. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and Eternal punishment is there no other way to be received again into favor than by punishment being visited either upon ourselves or another. God will have his justice satisfied. Why? Because of his righteousness and in his righteousness, it's this, the way of sin, for sin, death is the penalty. Those who are guilty of sin have to serve the sentence of death, the way of death for the guilty, if you will. That's according to God's righteousness. Now, beloved, can't help it if and don't like that aspect of God's character, and uh, they're not attracted to that aspect of God's character. It's not a matter with God, you know, who goes out and takes a poll and then finds out in the community what aspect of his character should he promote to make himself attractive and advertise himself that way. So men will be attracted to him. That's not according to the character of God. There may be churches that are interested in this to make themselves attracted to the community and to others. And what kind of image of God shall we project to you if you're going to be attracted to us and you will join us in, in membership? And once they, they read the return of the polls, they make a decision what aspect of God's character should they, they promote in the interest of their own growth in membership. Churches may do that in their utter folly. They may grow in membership. Are they going to grow in having spiritual members like that? That's another question. They may grow in membership. But are they going to be growing in the membership of those who have faith and who are saved? That's a whole other matter. Nonetheless, churches may do that. But that's not God. God isn't interested 
in asking how he may best promote his image to his own advantage, as you were, if you were, numerically. God is God, and he is not interested, you understand, in conforming himself to man's preference. But this is the truth. Man's ideas of God better learn to conform themselves to who God is as he reveals himself in the holy scriptures. And according to the holy scriptures, it has to do with this righteousness of God. God having determined, you see, to save the elect remnant has determined what is necessary, nearly, namely the satisfaction of his justice. Why satisfaction of his justice? Because, of course, of the severity of our sins, what our sins warrant, but also, of course, because of who he is. And who he is is this righteous, holy God, to concepts that are almost interchangeable and they are, of course, in some ways twins. They belong together, but holiness especially emphasizes his purity and how abhorrent he finds sin, transgression, vileness. It says defilement before him. It's, it's almost, you see, as he's being holy and and sin, as it's found in a man, is a, a rottenness and a corruption. It's like a dead animal that has been sitting, laying there for a while, and you turn it over and open up, and the stink and the stench comes in, and you draw back. Well, to God's holy nostrils, that's what sin is like, and man in his, in his sin, his holy abhorrence of that which is sin, because it's defilement, and it carries a certain putrefaction with it, because... Death is a rottenness, isn't it? It's not just innate. Stone is innate, but it's not dead. When you're talking about death, you're talking about rottenness and corruption. God abhors sin with its rottenness and the holy and its corruption, the holy God. But he's righteous, you see, as as well. And righteousness has to do with the standard of good and evil, and God being committed to it and inconsistent. See, he keeps his word. You can counter it, as you say. And there's nothing then that has to do with sin that he is simply going to pass by and ignore and take no notice of it. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That which is guilty of sin, penalty of death. Scriptures filled with that, this whole matter of God in his righteousness. One of the first places, beloved, where it's stated explicitly is Genesis 18, 21, and then again in 25, but says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a rather... Interesting statement because of the context. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You know what the context is? For, I say men, but three of them weren't really men, though they looked like men. Two were angels. One was God. 
taking on a visible form, and the other was Abraham. Where were they headed? To Sodom and Gomorrah. And that lifestyle. And today, what are even Christians saying about that lifestyle in this community? Oh, it's not such a terrible lifestyle. We may approve of that lifestyle. In fact, if you come to our university, you're safe in our university as you practice this lifestyle. And Genesis 18 says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right as he's looking over Sodom and Gomorrah and judgment looms and is going to be visited upon that city, you see. That's where God's righteousness, if you will, meets the road. The rubber meets the road. It's not simply going to be ignored and dismissed or tolerated and approved of. Satisfaction must be made. Penalty will be imposed. And either those who have practiced it will be punished, or another will have been punished in their stead as they have confessed and turned from it. There isn't two other ways. God's righteousness will be satisfied one way or the other, and such is not simply going to be approved and let go in the name of Christianity and the gospel itself. Or again, Exodus 23, 7, I will not acquit the guilty. That is, I will not acquit the guilty without the sentence having been served. That's according to scripture, and we could go on in holiness, beloved, simply strengthens that statement of, of righteousness because as it says, holiness makes plain to us just how serious God views sin and transgression as that which is abhorrent to him and he will not abide and must be dealt with either in the way of its removal and the gangrene healed and made whole or cut out and cast aside this matter of God's righteousness. It's thoroughly scriptural and Beloved, that's underscored this matter of the satisfaction and the need for satisfaction of God's justice or of righteousness throughout the whole of the scriptures, beginning, of course, in the Old Testament, and that justice and righteousness must be satisfied, or justice must be satisfied according to God's righteousness, is clear from the sacrifices. Like God informed Israel that beginning with Abel, that the way into his presence was the way of sacrifice. And the way of sacrifice wasn't simply you brought God an animal, and then you turned away and said, here, you can have the animal and do with what you want, Lord. It was the bringing of the animal to do what with? To slay. To shed the blood. Put it to death. find this Old Testament view 
of the necessity of sacrifice and how God viewed it in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, and summarized nicely in Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And if one's oblation, one's offering, be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. That's how the sacrifice is described. And it's interesting, the elements that belong to this necessary sacrifice if a man will enter into God's presence and be received and the stink of his sin, you see, be removed and he doesn't smell anymore like a dead animal. He shall offer it, okay, without blemish. Not something you have left over, you're not going to put to use anyway. It's kind of lame in one hoof or not giving much milk anyway. We can do without this animal. No, the best of the herd without blemish. A lamb without blemish? A lamb without blemish, that ring a bell? The lamb without blemish, or whatever is of the cattle. And then, beloved, imputation. He, the priest, represented the people. Prophets represented God. Prophets brought the word of God and represented God. Priests represented the people. They would go into the tabernacle itself, representing the people. So the priest represents those who come to him, and he puts his hands upon the head of the offering. And there's the transfer of guilt, you see, the imputation of the guilt of that man who comes to the offering, and it goes from him to the animal. And then he does what? He kills it at the door of the tabernacle. He cuts the jugular. And the blood would just, with each pulse, just... And then the animal would, eyes would glaze over, and it would fall and die in a rather merciful way. Rather merciful way. They didn't hack away at their... That wasn't how they taught, taught the suffering of, of Christ, by hacking away at an animal. They would shed the blood by simply having the jugular cut and then stop there. Then, having had the animal faint away and die, they would catch them in the basin and they would sprinkle it because they're now they're offering it to God for God's consideration. And then they burned it on the altar, which is a manifestation of the wrath of God burning against that which represented guilt and sin. And so, beloved, the one who brought the offering was free from the punishment, from the need himself to satisfy the justice of God. Now, as you heard me explain it, you know yourself how that points Christ, um, the great sacrifice for sin and sinners. How clearly, how clearly the Old Testament believers saw the fullness of Christ Jesus as the sacrifice is a matter of discussion and disagreement and I suppose speculation. There were things beloved about the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God 
in the Old Testament they did not. And from a certain point of view, they could not understand, and that didn't mean they weren't believers, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. We must not, in any way, minimize the importance of the Holy Spirit of Christ coming to open the eyes of people in the New Testament to understand more fully even the meaning of the Old Testament sacrifices. Because there's evidence that in the Old Testament they could not wrap their hand, their minds about the fact that the one who would make the sacrifice for them would himself be the sacrifice. Mediator's coming, going to make the sacrifice, but can that be himself? Why? See? So, there were things about which they were not clear. And that's not, that's not speculation. All you have to do is go to Luke, chapter 24, and the travelers on the road to Emmaus, and they're filled with grief as they tell this traveler who comes walking up, up along their sides, and that they are filled with, with grief. Why, what's this manner? Why, why are you so sad? Well, are you only a stranger? Uh, we're talking about what? What are you talking about? Well, this Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, mighty indeed, and notice, prophet, not priest. Prophet, and the chief priest condemned him, and we trusted this would have redeemed Israel, uh, but now he's died. We can't find his body right now, but he's, he's died. Then he said to them, O fools, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Messiah, the promise, he says Christ here, Messiah, promised mediator, have to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? Don't you understand that he had to suffer? That wasn't something they grasped. He had to make a sacrifice. He had to be the king to destroy the enemy, but he had to do that by dying on a cross in that way. It, 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 they couldn't comprehend it. And then Christ, of course, makes it plain. And what he does is he goes to the Holy Script, Old Testament and says, now, let me open the Scriptures. That really, though you don't understand it fully, this is what the Scriptures actually foretold. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, especially concerning his suffering, see? And then when he made go, go on, oh no, stay with us, we want to hear more. Now things are making sense. Now we're beginning to see, abide with us, tis even die. This is a glorious gospel. Tell us more, tell us more, tell us more. How much, I say, the Old Testament believers understood the whole of the mystery of godliness, how God is going to work without salvation, is a matter of some speculation. But when we preach the Old Testament, we don't have to preach it from their perspective, whether they knew it, understood it fully or not. We know what the scriptures have to say because we have the New Testament, of course, that explains the Old Testament and Christ crucified to make plain what all these things are referring to. But this I want to make plain. Whatever else 
the Old Testament saints didn't fully understand. There was one thing they did understand, maybe more than one, but they understood the righteous character of God and that sin had to be paid for. It was that serious, and God's justice had to be satisfied, and it wasn't sin was not simply going to be ignored, dismissed, and we'll pretend it never happened. It's going to have to be dealt with. And it's going to have to be the way of a sacrifice. Blood is going to have to be shed. And only then will God be satisfied and the guilt of the iniquity removed and will be reconciled to God and have the right to fellowship with him. That they understood. They understand it. They understood it, beloved, sad to say, more clearly than so many of Christendom today, though they have the whole of the scriptures in their hands. Christ Jesus, the gospel, the cross, which you would think would underscore to them just how serious God takes sin if he did not spare his own son. Wouldn't that tell you he must take sin very, very seriously, our sins, if he didn't even spare his own son but poured out him wrath? You would think it would be Dogma 101, and yet they don't want that doctrine, do they? Why not? Well, they would understand the righteousness of God. They don't want the righteousness of God. They don't want God to take sin that serious. They don't want to call sin, sin. What they don't want, beloved, is in some ways described here in question and answer 13. Can we ourselves make the satisfaction? By no means, but notice, on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. That view of man, even of believers. We are sinners. We have debts. And they increase. Our sins rise up against us. And they're there day by day. And they have to be dealt with in the way of confession and repentance and basing one's confidence on the sacrifice Christ. God's Christ sacrifice day by day. They are that serious. And if you're not dealing with them, as we're going to say again this, this, this evening, day by day, don't think it's not going to affect your relationship to God. God does not simply let sin go undealt with. And if we do not deal with it by faith and prayer, seeking the covering of the sacrifice, God will deal with us. Again, something can be emphasized this evening in the parable of the prodigal. He will have his justice satisfied. For sin, payment will and must be made. He takes it that serious, and we live in an age of Christendom that wants to talk about Christendom but they don't want to talk, as I have said, about the seriousness of, of sin and God's righteousness over against sin, that we daily increase our debt. It's as though come to come to church, become a member, and we'll tell you you're all fine fellows, and there's not much you do that displeases God any, anymore. And now you may pretty much live as you as you please, because you made the, the right choice of 
becoming a Christian and joining the church. That may be their view of the love, but it's not Scripture's view, and it certainly isn't the view of the catechism, which is to say the leading of the spirit of the church to understand the Scriptures through the ages. In the end, let's understand that there is a righteous God and his righteousness must be answered in the way of satisfaction for sin being made. And that righteous character of God is not simply Old Testamental. And now somehow the, the character of God has changed. In the Old Testament it was this righteousness and because of the righteousness there's a severity of, of judgment. Now you get to the, the New Testament and now it's love, love, love. And love means approval or you don't condemn anything. You love someone, doesn't matter what they're doing, how they're living, you don't condemn or rebuke. Just let it go. As if that's New Testament now. No, beloved, that's not New Testament. New Testament still speaks of the righteousness of God and the need for sacrifice and to base one's plea on the basis of that sacrifice. It's found in the book of Hebrews. I just want to briefly point that out before we bring the conclusion to the, the sermon. The, the, the book of Hebrews, beloved, speaks about the need of satisfying the righteousness of God by a sacrifice, but as he is, has the qualifications that the catechism lays out. What Leviticus makes plain, and the Old Testament by sacrifice, is that we can't make satisfaction ourselves by good deeds. Well, we, we did this deed, we did that deed. It's, it, it's reprehensible, but now to make up for it, I will do this good deed. I'll, I'll do this righteousness. And they will kind of balance each, each other out. And we'll make up for it. No, we can't make that satisfaction ourselves by some kind of good deed. Otherwise, God wouldn't have had sacrifices made in the Old Testament and the death of the sacrifice as well, and then the fire burned against the sacrifice as well. More is needed. Sacrifice is needed because of his righteousness, and as I said, the New Testament makes that plain as, as well, and it's made plain in the end in the book of, of Hebrews that you have now a sacrifice that is provided for by God that meets the qualifications that are necessary to be met, which animals could not, you see. I go to the New Testament, and I said in the beginning that there were many who were in the church as Jews, and their, their Jewish relations were saying, well, that's the end of the animal sacrifices, that's the end, end of the priesthood, and animal sacrifices in the priesthood are scriptural. How can you do away with the scripture? In the book of the Hebrews, of course, the apostle makes plain, you don't understand the scriptures. If you read the scriptures, you understand they were put in place by God purposely, temporarily. And those sacrifices in the end didn't make satisfaction. The blood of bulls and goats, beloved, don't make satisfaction. They simply postpone the judgment. God is willing to put off the judgment while the sacrifices are being made. 
but until the final sacrifice is being made, there is no satisfaction, just postponement. So the law speaks of chapter 10. They that, then they, then would they not have ceased being sacrificed? If, the, if those sacrifices made the comers thereunto perfect, complete satisfaction, they would have ceased to be offered. But these sacrifices are offered again and again. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. <coughs> Postpones judgment. But doesn't take away sin. Why? Well, as the Catechism says, because they're animal sacrifices and it's not the animal that has sinned, it's man that has sinned. And because man has sinned, man or a man must make the payment. One must represent the one who has sinned, you see. And that's why, as well, well, if an animal doesn't satisfy, what about an angel? Animal isn't perfect, but an angel is perfect. Let's have a perfect sacrifice of, of an angel. And that's why we read what we did in Hebrews chapter 2, as the apostle makes plain now. Uh, the angels are never spoken of in the sense of a sacrifice. For all of their perfection, Christ, the, the, the one who made the sacrifice did not take on himself the nature of angels. He may have been perfect as such, but he wouldn't represent man. Rather, he took not on the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He had to take on the flesh of Abraham. But now, beloved, he also had to be without blemish. He had to be sinless. Why? Because if he wasn't, he'd have to make payment for his own sin. He couldn't sin, pay, pay, payment for another. He has to make payment for another sin. He cannot have sin himself. So he can be a creature. He has to be a, a man. He has to be a sinless man. And now he can make the sacrifice. What sacrifice? He's going to have to make the sacrifice of himself as the apostle makes plain in the book of Hebrews because the animals can never satisfy and the one who comes is going to have to say I am the sacrifice and then as we said in Luke as he made plain to the traveler on the road of Maus means that the one who makes the sacrifice himself has to be the one who suffers a man has to suffer and so the one who was the mediator is going to have to give himself to the suffering and say, Lord, punish me. I represent the people. Let thy wrath fall on me. And I will bear that wrath. But don't you see, beloved, as the catechism says, then he's going to have to be more than a mere man. I mean, we speak of Jesus as the son of man, but... He's more than mere man. Again, the, the Jews would say to their Jewish convert children, what do you mean that Jesus is the Son of God? He has to be the Son of God. We don't read the Messiah has to be the Son of God. And Hebrews says, you don't read the Messiah has to be the Son of God. You must read the scriptures with some kind of dark glasses on because the scriptures make very plain that the one who comes as mediator is his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. This is scripture. 
He doesn't say this to the angels, but he says this to another. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. So the Jewish converts could say to their parents, no, no, the Old Testament makes plain. The mediator who comes, the Messiah, wasn't simply going to be a man, the son of David. He also had to be God's son. That's the scripture. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I will be his father, he shall be to me a son. So the Christians aren't simply adding to the scriptures. The Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are explaining what the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, actually foretold and prophesied concerning the mediator. He has to be David's seed. He has to be the son of man related to Abraham. He has to be perfect without sin. But he also has to be the son of God. And this is what this Jesus is. If we don't have one who is the son of God, mother and father, no atonement, no reconciliation would ever be accomplished. Our mediator has to be the one who is represented, revealed by this Jesus of Nazareth, or there is no salvation possible. And so the scripture set forth his qualifications. Only one who is son of, the, of son of God can endure the wrath and bring it to a completion in time. Satisfy, you see. Otherwise, our satisfaction means simply we suffer everlastingly for everlasting death. And there is no in termination but as the son of God he brings it to its completion once as the scripture says as, as Hebrew says more than once but this one but by, by, his, by his death once once for all has made satisfaction so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and to them who look to him his appearing without sin until salvation the second time as the Son of God to make the perfect sacrifice and bring all sacrifices to an end and he himself being the enduring high priest. So beloved the qualifications and they're laid out here in the catechism and we understand that and only God can provide this mediator with those qualifications. Wonderful. But the question still remains. Why should he do that? What is there about you and me that moved him to do that? Knowing to save the likes of us was it going to cost him that much? What's there about you that's so special? What's there about me that's so special to cost God his all he could do it but why would he do it God so loved how unfathomable loved what a marvelous Jehovah let us praise him with a great praise and confess him according to the truth of his character and be grateful that he the righteous one in his mercy has supplied us with the necessary righteousness that we don't have to make payment ourselves amen
For thy word we give thee thanks, write it upon our hearts and give us understanding and magnify thyself as the great Jehovah, as the God of righteousness and mercy, as the saving and only saving God. Amen. <clears throat> 